welcome to episode 22 of the Underground Christian Podcast, a sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians. In just the short time since last episode, the world seems to have lost its mind. Again. Merely on the rumor that the Supreme Court is getting ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, Antifa has entered the streets to do what they do best, which is riot. The liberals of TikTok and Facebook and Twitter have joined in by openly encouraging people to murder Supreme Court justices, at least the conservative ones. Sounds like a good old-fashioned Democrat lynch mob to me. All across Twitter and Facebook, insane leftist progressives are openly advocating to burn it all down. Let's hear what Laura Ingram of Fox News has to say about this. Joining me now is Carrie Severino, a former uh, Justice Thomas Supreme Court clerk and Judicious, Judicial Crisis Network president, and Mike Davis, a former law clerk for Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch and Article Three Project president. Mike, uh, let's start with you. Walk us through what may be happening in layman terms, if you could. Yeah, I mean, if you're making threats against Supreme Court justices, you are violate, violating federal law. There are, there are laws on the books for assaults, for threats, for conspiracy, for obstruction of justice. And it is disgraceful that Attorney General Merrick Garland, a former federal judge himself, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, uh, FBI Director Chris Ray, the U.S. attorneys in D.C., Maryland, the Eastern District of Virginia, crickets from these people. This is unacceptable. These are these are real threats against the lives of Supreme Court justices, and they need to step up right now and do something about this. Yeah, Carrie, we'll get into the substance of of what's happening or the lies about the opinion. But that is a question, is it not? We're, we're at a time where we've had 16 months of Democrats screaming incitement, incitement, insurrection, insurrection. And now, Jen Psaki's kind of like parsing her words, mincing her words about what this is, this intimidation campaign, which I'm calling terroristic because I think it is, against the justices. Do they have adequate security dovetailing from what Mike just said? Oh, I sure hope so. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think this is one of the most concerning things about this leak. Not only does it strike a blow at the trust inherent in the, in the internal workings of the court, but this is a real act of threat against the justices themselves. I know that they are ramping up security, but as this is why I think, and a lot of us have said, let's let's just issue this opinion right. uh, quickly. I, I think it's no surprise though. I mean, Jen Psaki, remember, used to work for Demand Justice. This is like the most radical left-wing dark money group out there. These are the people who were praising the leaker saying we need more Supreme Court leaks. This is the people who have a board member who says the Constitution's trash and should be scrapped. They want to have more justices yesterday, they said in the court. They're trying to use this to kind of pack the court. So even if they can't switch this decision now, or some have said even let's pack the court before the end of the term. Oh my goodness. It is it is no holds barred. It's any means justify the end here. And that's what's uh, what's so disturbing. And apparently, none of these calls for violence violate the community standards of any of these platforms. Not one of these people have been banned. To get banned, you have to do something really heinous, like discuss the efficacy of mandatory vaccines that really aren't. Or suggest that ivermectin can legitimately be used to treat something other than horse parasites. But murder, arson, treason, a real insurrection, those are as wonderful as a sunny day as long as they come from the left. 
Christians have been repeatedly warned by God not to be fooled by false narratives and to watch for deceptions from unrighteous members of society and to be on the alert to the wiles of Satan because he runs the world and the world works for him. I don't say that on my own accord. Jesus said it first and then Paul affirmed it and so did John. So we Christians ought to believe it. James said that friendship with the world is actual enmity with God and the friends of God are to separate themselves from the world. Paul commanded Jesus' followers to have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, again referring to the world. Now the world in this context is not a round ball of dirt or even the things that are sitting and crawling on the round ball of dirt. The world is the social, economic, political, and military system that has been painstakingly created by Satan to advance his agenda, and his agenda is to establish his guy, the false messiah, on the throne of the world. His agenda pretty much mirrors the UN agenda, and the globalist agenda, and the communist agenda, and the Islamic agenda. It is an agenda to unite the world under a single, unified, dictatorial, tyrannical government and leader. We are a world at war, and we regular people are its target. At the moment, it's not a hot war in the sense of munitions being lobbed everywhere, at least in most parts of the world, but it could become that way at any moment. For the time being, it's mostly an unconventional war being waged in unconventional ways to establish, by stealth, the deception of an unconventional new world order. People have been talking about a new world order for a long time. Important people, like the Bushes and Obama. And, well, just take a listen. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. But if you had to say, this is going to be the country or the conflict or the place that will define the Obama administration, what would it be? The president elect is coming into office at the moment when there are upheavals in many parts of the world simultaneously. You have India, Pakistan, you have the jihadist movement. So he can't really say that it's one problem, that it's the most important one. Uh, but he can give a new impetus to American foreign policy, be partly because the reception of him is so extraordinary around the world. I think his task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period, when really a new world order can be created. It's a great opportunity. You know, I don't like to think in terms of opportunities at this point. I would put it, at least in my area, more in terms of the biggest challenge that we face uh, over the next decade. Uh, I've dealt with international affairs in my career now for about 25 or 30 years. Uh, and we are in the midst of one of the historic global transformations uh, that is going to uh, eventually lead to a, a new world order. I think that the, the most important thing for the global south is whether a new global order is in the making. Globalists like George and George Bush, Barack Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, George Soros, and Bill Gates, not to mention virtually every politician of any status across the entire Western world, they all very much desire to establish a single world government that will control everything, including you.
Unfortunately for us, many people don't want to believe this. In fact, they refuse to believe it. They prefer to believe that government works for us, that politicians have our best interests in mind, and that people who wear nice clothes and appear on TV can't really be evil. They would know evil if they saw it, they think. So they are going to ignore what is taking place and continue to run their lives as if nothing is out of the ordinary. They will ignore the avalanche of warnings all around them and just hope for the best. Hopey, hopey. And this includes a distressing number of Christians, many of whom have been taught their entire lives that it is our duty to do whatever we are told to do by our government. And to prove this, they tend to cite Romans 13.2 or Titus 3.1. These are the kinds of people the tyrannical globalists love because they are easy to cultivate, like wheat in a field. The passive, compliant, even apathetic kind of people are the ones they look for. The kind of people who will make establishing a brutal dictatorship fantastically easy. Well, will they believe Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Great Britain? Let's hear what maybe Boris has to say to us. I'm profoundly optimistic about the ability of new technology to serve as a liberator and to remake the world wondrously and benignly. Indeed, in countless respects, technology is already doing just that. Nanotechnology, I mentioned earlier revolutionizing medicine by designing robots a fraction of the size of a red blood cell capable of swimming through our bodies, dispensing medicine and attacking malignant cells like some Star Wars armada. Neural interface technology is producing a new generation of cochlear implants, I think, of new tools that we acquired, but over which we, the human race, had the advantage, which we controlled, and that is not necessarily the case in the digital age. You may keep your secrets from your friends, from your parents, your children, your doctor, even your personal trainer, but it takes real effort to conceal your thoughts from Google. And if that is true today, in future, there may be nowhere to hide, nowhere to hide. Smart cities will pullulate with sensors all joined together by the Internet of Things, bollards communing invisibly with lampposts. But this technology could also be used to keep every citizen under round-the-clock surveillance. A future Alexa will pretend to take orders, but this Alexa will be watching you, clucking her tongue and stamping her foot. You see... Tyrants love passive people because it makes their job of controlling a population so much easier. And control of a population is key to implementing a tyrannical agenda. Many past regimes have tried to establish a worldwide government but failed, usually to the great expense and loss of the population. Different times, different situations, different ideas, but all of them have failed. So the new wannabe tyrants got to thinking. What is it that kept all of these dictators from succeeding? What was the common denominator among all these diverse government thugs? And the number one thing that they settled on was population. There were simply too many people for any one tyrant to control effectively. Oh, they did fine with their own populations and even a few of the neighbors. The Romans threw undesirable troublemakers into the arena to fight against gladiators or fed them to hungry lions or stapled them to crosses, or just ran them through with swords. Romans weren't too fussy about how they killed people they didn't want. 
The Catholic Church did it by burning people alive, sending knights out to slice and dice them, or hiring monks to pull off body parts a little bit at a time. Napoleon did it by cutting off a lot of heads, which was quick and apparently quite entertaining based on the historic accounts of crowds forming to watch. Of course, they didn't have Netflix back then. Lenin did it by starving a good chunk of his population and then shooting gobs of others. Hitler did it by gassing Jews, mostly, and shooting other people, either formerly or otherwise. Stalin did it by starving the Russians again, shooting lots more of them, and for good measure, freezing a bunch more to death. And Mao did it by starving millions, shooting millions, and hanging millions. Mao did it big. So there is a theme, historically, whereby tyrant rulers eliminate a large portion of their unwanted populations. They got rid of enough of their own people to control the rest, but they could not get rid of enough of the other guy's people to take over the world. So these modern tyrant types got to thinking, how many actual murders would it take to whittle the population of the world down to a manageable size? Based on a very expensive granite monument they purchased, known as the Georgia Guidestones, they settled on all but about 500 million. Now, while 500 million surviving souls is nothing to sneeze at, Reaching that goal will require about 95% of the Earth's population to be eliminated, and it will have to be fast enough so that the reproductive rate cannot replace them. So in a group of 10 people, that would mean 9.5 of them will have to die. Now I'm aware that the owners of the Georgia Guidestones are somewhat shadowy and uncertain, but there are some very certain things that we do know about them. The first thing we know for sure is that they are very rich. This is a huge monument, and it was paid for in cash. It is made from stone, very large stones, which are very expensive to mine, finish, carve, transport, and erect. And it had to be erected secretly, in the sense of not knowing who the erectors were, which takes even more money. Now, who has enough money to erect a monument that celebrates the elimination of most of the human race? Only very wealthy wannabe dictators. And why would they announce their plans to do something as wicked and evil as killing off almost the entire population with so obvious and gauche a stone monument? Well, first of all, because they conclude, correctly, that no one will really believe it. If you knew about the monument at all, which most people don't, you would probably just dismiss it as misguided whimsy. But there is a clue that it might be more than that, and it's embedded in the name of the builder. His name, the one he used anyway, was R.C. Christian. To be sure, no one outside the group that erected the monument knows for sure exactly what the name signifies, but it's clearly a kind of mockery of Christians. The best guess I have heard is that the R.C. stands for Rosy Cross, the emblem taken by the Order of the Rosicrucians, a satanic secret society related to the Freemasons that was founded in medieval Germany by Christian Rosenkreutz. We can't be sure that descendants of that order commissioned the stones, but the occultic nature of the organization and the stones certainly fits. After all, the Bible says there will be a satanic one-world government in the end times, and the engravings on these stones certainly makes it clear that the plan of the people who erected them is to establish a unified, worldwide, and occultic government, which is satanic. These are anti-Christians, just in case you missed that. In America, we live in a Christian-based and founded society, the shrill protestations of upstart atheists notwithstanding. The stone erectors intend to change that, and they don't care that you know it. 
they probably just assume that we dumb Christians should know it since it is advertised all through the most popular book ever written. So it seems that the first problem that the globalist masters must overcome is population. It needs to be controllable, which means it needs to be controlled. They need population control. Now, the idea of population control is perhaps the major theme over at the United Nations, as it is the single most important concept that most of their organizations revolve around. In fact, it is one of the most discussed and planned values of the modern age. The hysterical demands for free access to universal birth control chemicals, abortions on demand, forced sterilization in third world countries, and the mysteriously appearing infertility chemicals that keep showing up in vaccines, tells us that this idea is not just physically oriented, but spiritually. There is a reason that the fertility of Western men and women continues to plunge, and even with plunging fertility and wide access to birth control, people still manage to get themselves pregnant, and too often their only thought when they do is to kill the thing that invaded their safe space. There are rioters in the streets over the mere possibility that access to abortion might be somewhat controlled in some states, which is how important this issue is to much of the extant population. Extant meaning living in existence. Around the world, abortion has become the sacrament of the new spiritual age, and you don't threaten a religious sacrament of the pagan world and get away with it. But all the abortions in the world can't reduce the size of the population on a time scale that means anything to these demonically possessed tyrants. They need fewer people soon, a lot fewer people. And so for many reasons, the monument builders settled on a half billion people as the maximum number of workers who can be manageably and safely controlled from the perspective of the tyrants using existing technology. Once the workers, you know, the the workers, the communist word for uh, employees, once the workers are under control, the actual agenda can be implemented. So the first pre-agenda item before the new world order can be actualized is the demise of lots and lots of people. Suddenly. But how can that be done? They pondered. Well, war is one possibility. America has certainly participated in many wars over the last couple hundred years. Many years ago, as part of a ninth grade English assignment, I had to learn and recite the Gettysburg Address. I mean, who does that these days? Just shows how old I am. The Gettysburg Address was written by Abraham Lincoln for the newly created National Cemetery at Gettysburg, where bodies of recently deceased soldiers were being reinterred from temporary grave sites over at the newly famous Gettysburg Battlefield. When President Lincoln gave the address, he was feverish and ill from what would turn out to be smallpox, and he looked that way. So he kept the address to a mere ten sentences, ridiculously short for a politician, but it encapsulated all the essential ideas that he wanted to convey. The beginning of it read, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. The Civil War was the bloodiest war in American history, with more casualties than both world wars combined. Approximately 655,000 Americans died in the Civil War, as opposed to 116,000 in the First World War and 405,000 in the Second. 
The Civil War accounts for almost half of all American war dead from the 79 wars and military operations that Americans have fought from the Revolutionary War in 1776 to the raid on Yemen in 2017. The Civil War was not only tremendously destructive physically, it was tremendously destructive financially. No one talks much about that, but neither side could actually afford to fight it. To pay for the war, the United States government entered into several agreements with foreign financial entities that would forever, if quietly, change the course of freedom in America and lead inevitably to the point where we stand today. We are met on the continuation of that battlefield, the one where we either fight for liberty or descend into the slavery of tyranny, or more likely, worse than tyranny. God favors righteous liberty because he is the great creator. He created everything out of nothing. He builds and he constructs and he encourages his people to do the same. We are to build and create, not to accumulate wealth or status or admiration for ourselves, but to have something to share with others. It's the means by which we look out for one another. You know, the second greatest commandment. We bring glory to the creator of everything when we emulate what he does and do what he commands us to do. But then there is Satan and his human allies, and they don't care much for God. Satan wants to create too, but he wants to create things for his purposes. His creation ideas demand that his followers first destroy what God and his supporters have built so that all evidence of God can be erased. Then from the ashes of the former creation, his supporters will be able to construct something very different from what God intended. One of the primary operating principles of Satan just so happens to also be the motto of the 33rd degree Freemasons. It is the phrase, order out of chaos. The UrbanDictionary.com says this motto was attributed to the Supreme Council of the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, as per Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. Freemasons have played, and continue to play, an important role in satanic worldly affairs, and they seem to pop up all over the place. Many prominent high-level Freemasons are politicians, business leaders, and senior military officers. Others are internationally renowned entertainers, financiers, and prestigious royalty. These Freemasons and their friends frequently cite another slogan that is similar to Order Out of Chaos, which is Build Back Better. This is the motto of the Democrat Party, their occupier-in-chief Joe Biden, the European globalists, and the United Nations. Building back better sounds great, but it first requires that we destroy what already exists, which is a process that produces chaos. You see? Order out of chaos. Build back better. Two peas in a pod. So out of this humble phrase pours forth all the events that inflame the world today, including lots and lots of wars. Here in America, the Civil War never really ended because the desire of some men and women to enslave and subjugate other men and women has not been eradicated, was not eradicated at the end of the war. The pursuit of tyranny merely shifted from a visible manifestation of violence to an invisible one, and at the same time provided a new entity a foothold in the American affairs of state. The Civil War script was rewritten with the goal of creating chaos out of order, from which a new world order could emerge from the chaos. Physical America lay in shambles after the Civil War, but that wasn't the chaos that the captains of destiny had in mind. The chaos they desired was a chaos of the mind that corrupts the soul and pollutes the heart. Out of that chaos, the phoenix can rise, but creating that kind of chaos would take almost a century of planning and gradual conditioning of the population. And it was going to take money. 
lots of money. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon being the worldly things we crave, like money. The Apostle Paul affirmed these words when he advised his spiritual son Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money, money, money makes the world go round, said the famous Broadway show. We are at the tail end of the plan to bring chaos to America and to the world via a kind of war, an ugly, unpleasant kind of war, especially for Christians who want to be peacemakers. Now, I know you want to be peacemakers, but to help you with the problem of being peacemakers, I remind you of a few things that our biblical advisors told us, starting with Jesus in Matthew 10.34. Do not think that I've come, he said, to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Not even Jesus gets to invade the territory of his enemy with the expectation of bringing peace. Jesus invaded Fortress Earth, which is Satan's kingdom, to establish his church in Satan's kingdom. The church is the invader, and from Satan's perspective, it is populated by traitors from his own kingdom. We Christians may prefer to see ourselves as those who have been rescued from Satan's kingdom, but the reality is we were all part of that kingdom at one time. When we defected over to Christ, we became Satan's enemy, and, like it or not, he treats us that way. That's why it's important to remember those godly words of wisdom from the Apostle Paul. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. But of course, it's not always up to us to live peaceably. There are many times we are called to fight for righteousness, justice, and truth, not to mention the lives of innocent people. We're not supposed to sit around and wait for God to do all the work, even when it means we won't be able to live peacefully with some people. Jesus died to become our king, and as king, he's given us a command to go out and do things to grow the kingdom in a hostile world that is dedicated to the deep things of Satan. We are enemy combatants in an existential war with evil. We know Jesus will ultimately win this war, but in the meantime, it's up to us, his troops, to fight the battles, even though we know we're not going to win them all. And when we lose, Satan and his cohorts win something. In the past, it used to be all about the booty. The winning side took everything of value from the losing side, split it up, and then either killed or enslaved the losers, depending on how many people they needed to do the menial work. For some reason, good-looking young women often ended up in high demand. That was the procedure right up until the advent of the church age, when the principles of Christianity infused some degree of grace and a little decency into the victor's behavior. Not much sometimes, but a lot more than existed before the church age. The history of the last 18 centuries of warfare has been a long series of Christian victories interspersed with episodes of worldly success, with some worldly actors trying to emulate, to some degree, the grace of Christianity. It seems like Christ has a tendency to rub off on a few people. That is an 18th century aberration in an otherwise unbroken tradition of depravity in warrior kings. Satan does not favor Christ's grace, however, and neither do his followers. They would prefer the old ways of the victors. Klaus Schwab, the mouthpiece of the globalist cabal that seeks to impose a new world order on everyone, has already announced publicly that you will own nothing and be happy. Their plan may be for you to own nothing, but you can bet your bank balance that someone will own the things you don't, and I guarantee that those people will be a whole lot happier in that day than you will be. 
And this same group of elitists have said that the world only needs so many people because machines are poised to replace people in the workplace. And very soon, the overlords love machines because they don't pick it or make demands. They don't ask for pay raises or vacation time or take maternity leave. They don't even need to rest. From the ruler's perspective, they will be a dream workforce. And when that day comes to pass, and it will much sooner than you think, when it arrives, the excess people will become a very heavy burden on the technocratic oligarchical tyrants. If there's one thing we know for sure about technocratic oligarchs, it is that they will eagerly work to eliminate problems to improve their profits. So how do you think they're going to eliminate that particular problem? You might also ask yourself if they have already started. And if they have already started, what have they done? Don't think that Satan and his oligarchs just started considering the solution to this new problem recently, because they've been developing increasingly sophisticated machines to replace human workers for years, and have for decades been developing a strategy to deal with the inevitable excess of humanity. The strategy, the key to implementing a human culling to bring in a new world order, involves a very simple principle called capture. They are fighting an undeclared, illicit war with humanity, and in war, things need to be captured. So we should start by asking, what does it mean when we say that we are going to capture something? Well, capture means to gain control over it. Land, for example, is an asset that has been subject to capture by blossoming dictators. Land is a valuable asset because it's the only finite resource. Everything else can be found, mined, or manufactured in almost unlimited quantities, but land is fixed, notwithstanding a few meaningless rubble islands that have been created by China. That makes capturing land a primary objective of every war, with some land being more valuable than other land. What else is a target of capture? Well, people are, to some degree, but people have to be fed, housed, contained, and controlled, especially prisoners of war, so people are often more of a liability than a prize. Nevertheless, capture of an enemy force permits some degree of control over that force, and at a minimum, it deprives the enemy of a resource. But there are other resources that are more valuable in war. Imagine, for example, that a cache of the enemy's weapons, ammunition, and armor fell into your hands. Not only would that deprive the enemy of these resources, but it would also bolster your resources. You might augment your own supply of weapons, or even gain the use of some weapons that would otherwise be unobtainable. When the occupier in chief Joe Biden ran away from Afghanistan in a big hurry, the Taliban captured tanks, sophisticated helicopters, and lots of other advanced munitions and communications equipment they otherwise would never have obtained. Of course, in this age of mechanized equipment, fuel is another resource that is valuable to capture. It's hard to run tanks and helicopters on air, so refined fuel such as gasoline, jet fuel, and natural gas is also needed. But those are just obvious targets of overt warfare. There are many other valuable targets of warfare that can be captured. But what if, instead of capturing things once they have been produced, a rising tyranny captured everything at its origin? Rather than forcibly conquer the land area of one government after another in a blitzkrieg of warfare and destruction, the New World Order globalist tyrants would seek to capture all the governments at once. Capture, not conquer. Gain control over, but not destroy. That is the new war that is taking place. It is the most comprehensive, complete, and diabolical war that has ever been waged against humanity, and very few people even know it's taking place. Just keep the word capture in mind.
To capture the world, all you need is to capture its governments, and to do that, all you really need is money. The world responds to money, so you just need enough of it to sway the world. So where does one get that much money? Well, there are some potential sources of money in the world. Governments and central banks print, spend, and loan money. Financial institutions and regular banks distribute the money, and businesses use the money they get to produce the goods and services that back the money. In addition, people invest the money that they have, and they give that money to the banks and the investment funds to invest. Without businesses that they invest in to make the things that we need, governments would only be able to print useless paper. So it would seem that the real money, that is the real wealth, is produced by businesses. Governments and central banks just create a monetary system to enable the businesses to produce the goods and services that make the economy work. They are, in essence, facilitators of business. Our founding fathers realized that wealth is produced when people can live in freedom. Subsequent generations discovered that the greater the competition, the more widely the generated and produced wealth was distributed among the population. Wherever business limited competition, freedom and prosperity waned for the vast majority of the people. But a few people prospered enormously. They came to be known as robber barons. These monopoly-creating men are household names today. Men like John D. Rockefeller, who created Standard Oil Company, which at one point controlled almost 90% of the oil in America. He did things like create cartels that would provide cheap oil to favored businesses, his, and sell it at highly inflated prices to unfavored businesses, yours, to drain their wealth into his pockets. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 resulted from this egregious behavior, and in 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the company broken apart. Two of its descendants were Exxon Corporation and Mobil Oil, which later merged back into ExxonMobil. Then there was Andrew Carnegie, a steel magnate who tried to create a highly controlled steel industry. One of the controls he sought was wage control, which led to widespread strikes and the killing of a lot of striking workers. Then he decided to go into education. There was John Pierpont Morgan, that is of J.P. Morgan fame, a railroad tycoon who was really good at consolidating diverse businesses under one roof. He pioneered the business model of growth by consuming his competition and then diversified into manufacturing, insurance, and finally finance, where we can still meet his namesake today. Finally, but not at all least, there was Cornelius Vanderbilt, who started in steamship shipping and quickly expanded into railroads. He was the quintessential transportation tycoon, using his monopolistic leverage over certain essential railroad lines to force smaller railroad lines to sell to him, eventually controlling all the rail lines between New York and Chicago. These men became fantastically wealthy by finding ingenious ways of forcing many people's wallets to empty into their own pocket, with the result that their families today are among the wealthiest people on the earth. They also taught a lesson to subsequent generations that with enough money comes not only comfort and prestige, but more importantly, power. Lots of power. And that lesson was taken to heart by the modern globalist. You look around and see thousands of corporations all around the world doing all kinds of unique and interesting things. Go into a mall and see how many businesses there are. But think about this. With very few exceptions, all of the major corporations in the Western world, all of them, are controlled by three business entities. We'll call them companies. These three companies are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. They control 
and thereby effectively own every business sector in America and the Western world. I'm not talking just business. I'm talking about entire sectors. They own the energy companies. Go to Yahoo Finance and type in any company's name. If it's publicly traded, chances are that one, two, or all three of these companies will show up in the first few owners. Look under holders and usually, you know, they'll be in the top spot. Take, for example, ExxonMobil, one of the energy companies. Its top owners are Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. It's the same over at Chevron. They are Vanguard and BlackRock. Across the pond at BP, it is State Street, Two Funds, and BlackRock. Occidental Petroleum and Phillips Petroleum are owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Schlumberger, the world's largest oil field services company, is owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. They not only own the energy sector, they own the financial institutions and the banks. Financial powerhouses like J.P. Morgan Chase, which we just learned about, have as their lead owners Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. It is the largest bank in America. The second is Bank of America. It's owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Berkshire Hathaway snuck in there, but don't be too deceived. It is owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Goldman Sachs, number five on the list and a powerhouse with its fingers in the Federal Reserve System, is owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. Finally, way down at number six is Morgan Stanley. When they talk, people listen. They are owned by State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock. These same three companies own defense industry giants like Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and Lockheed Martin. They own chemical behemoths like Dow and DuPont. They own all of the major telecommunications companies, including Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T. They own the biggest and most influential technology companies such as Alphabet, that, that is Google, Twitter, and Apple. They own the pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and Merck. They own artificial intelligence development companies like Veritone, Zymergen, and that cool car company, Tesla. They even own the major media companies like Disney, Comcast, News Corp, and Sony, although they own Sony through its primary investor, PrimeCap, which is a Vanguard investment fund. They own the major agricultural companies like ConAgra, Bayer, BASF, Kellogg, and General Mills. Gosh, they own a lot. So I wonder, who owns them? Well, the owners of State Street are pretty clear. They are Vanguard, BlackRock, and a State Street subsidiary corporation. Gosh, that's convenient. And who owns BlackRock? It turns out to be Vanguard, a subsidiary BlackRock entity, and State Street. It's a small world. Now, the million-dollar question is, who owns Vanguard? Well, that, my friends, is the mystery. It is a privately held corporation, and it doesn't reveal who owns it. So we have three humongous corporations who own a controlling interest in almost every major corporation on Earth. You could include a fourth humongous company in Berkshire Hathaway if you wanted to, but it's kind of meaningless since it's owned by all the others. And this just in on the wire, Blackstone, another black company, just acquired Ancestry.com for $4.7 billion. Boy, that's a lot of money for a bunch of people who look into people's background and history. They now own the largest DNA database in the free world. 
And who is Blackstone? Well, let's check out who owns it. First is Vanguard, then BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, Capital World Investors, Royal Bank of Canada, nothing at all going on in Canada or with their banks, Capital International Investors, J.P. Morgan Chase, and bringing up the eighth position, State Street. All of these entities, if you do the research, will trace their ownership back to one or more of the big three. So Vanguard now controls the world's largest DNA database, brought to you voluntarily by people who want to know if they have royalty in their blood, and government health ministries around the world, and corporate health institutions, all of which have contributed to Ancestry's giant database. Now, what could someone do with all of this DNA information, I wonder? Hmm. Billions of dollars for it. So all of these entities are owned, essentially, by a shadowy group of extremely wealthy and extremely powerful oligarchs. And what is the problem with this setup, you might ask? Well, first, the American capitalist system was founded on the principle of free competition. Where there is competition, the free movement of capital in the market will control the destructive and greedy influences of individuals. We have antitrust laws to prevent monopolies because monopolies use their market control to limit competition and leverage revenue from a dependent group of consumers. Monopolies force people to accept whatever quality of product the monopolist chooses to impose on them at whatever price, rather than fostering choice that improves quality. Monopolies crush innovation, drain capital into the pockets of the monopolist, and burden consumers with inferior goods and services. To prevent monopolies, America created a whole set of laws governing who can own what, with whom, and how much of it they can do. The laws anticipated that there would be secret deals to create de facto monopolies, so it outlawed conspiracy to create monopolies. When the same handful of corporations own a controlling interest in virtually every company that matters, when they seat the same people on boards of directors of different companies, they create an artificial monopolistic system that was undreamed of by the railroad barons of yesterday and apparently is untouchable by the American jurisprudence system. This small group of unknown individuals have endless resources at their disposal, vast sums of money to be spent on whatever tickles their fancy. They literally control the entire economy from top to bottom because they can make or break any company or individual with a mere word. They control the entire production chain and effectively even the smaller independent companies because they own everything that the smaller companies need to exist. They own the raw materials. They own the manufacturing plants. They own the distribution companies. They own the retail companies. They own the media companies. They own the banks. They own the food supply. And through political action committees and charitable trusts, they also own the politicians who write the laws that give them ever-expanding power and influence in society. Do you wonder how a handful of individuals could amass so much capital that they could literally purchase the control of the entire free world's economic system? They did not do it by working a minimum wage job and working their way up. They did not do it by building a successful company. They did not do it by having a better product to sell to a hungry market. None of those things can create nearly enough wealth to capture all the world's businesses. The only organizations large enough to generate that much capital are governments and governmental organizations. Politicians make laws that take the wealth of their country and funnel it to the central banks, 
which loan it to controlled banks, other banks, and financial institutions, which then in turn loan it to various businesses in different forms. If you have any kind of an investment or if you have a retirement fund, then those funds are usually invested in these financial institutions. So you are actually contributing your money to these organizations in order to do what it is that they do, which is purchase all of the controlling interest in all of the businesses in the world. The banks and financial institutions prosper by manipulating monetary policy and the money supply. Inflation is just a neat way that they can steal money from the taxpayers by inflating the amount of the currency in circulation and decreasing its value. If there are $10 in circulation and I print 10 more, if nothing else changes, the value of the $20 is halved. It takes twice as much money to buy the same thing because the amount of the stuff that's produced is the same. The difference is that I control half the money and therefore get half the benefit of it even though I produced nothing. You, who are the ones who produce everything, lose despite producing all the wealth. Over time, this system concentrates more and more real wealth into the hands of those who control the financial institutions. Keep this in mind. The value of the dollar has declined in the last 100 years by 95%. That means it has 5% of the buying power that it had 100 years ago. That means that that much money has been printed and transferred that wealth into the hands of other people. Nathan Rothschild of the famous German banking family once said, I care not what puppet sits upon the throne of England to rule an empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls the British money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. What can a person do with all the money in the world? Whatever he or she likes. Everyone, it is said, has a price, and it sure is true of the people of the world. We like to think our government is made up of good people who are selflessly seeking the good of society, but that's a fiction. The government is made up of regular people like you and me who like the same things we do and have the same concerns we do. They like a nice house and a nice car. They have bills to pay and kids to put through school. They have vacations they want to take and clothes they want to buy, big screen TVs. All of this takes money. They like power and prestige and status. Government people crave power and status in particular. And money buys it all from the top on down. If the owners of the world's wealth wanted to reduce the Earth's population, they could unleash weapons on society. They own weapons research facilities. They own the weapons production facilities. They hire former generals to sit on their corporate boards. They pay politicians to invest government money in weapons and weapons research that are used and need to be replaced, you know, in wars. Like when we send all of our, uh, you know, warfare equipment over to some European countries to be fighting against Russia, over to Ukraine. That material gets used up and it needs to be replaced. And who owns the corporations that are producing the warfare material? They do. They can sell their weapons to both sides. They can sell the food and the vehicles and the clothing and the medical services that the people who are fighting the war need on both sides. They can sell their caskets and funeral services and the new methods they've developed to liquefy human bodies and flush them down the drain. They can sell it to both sides. And they can even make the liquefaction equipment and the chemicals at their manufacturing and chemical plants. That would get rid of some people, but not nearly enough to bring down the overall population. I mean, there are a lot of people on the earth. They could engineer chemicals or biological warfare agents that could be delivered to select populations. 
They own the chemical facilities, the bioresearch laboratories, the pharmaceutical companies, and the medical facilities. They own the defense contractors who work with shadowy intelligence and defense agencies to develop all kinds of ways of killing people. If they wanted to, they could develop a microbiological weapon that they could insert into a syringe that is produced in their pharmaceutical companies, and they could get it publicly paid for using their insurance companies and distribute it through their chain pharmacies and cover up their deeds using paid politicians and their media companies and their medical companies and their dependent universities. All they need, all they would need, is a trigger. Something that would scare people and make them beg to get the substance that would be injected into their bodies. Capture. There sure are lots of things to be captured. Is there really a group of shadowy individuals who want to run the world? And do they really have control of the countries that control the world's most powerful weapons, including us? Almost, but we regular people are in the way. Or more specifically, our ideas of freedom are in the way, and they need to be removed. They need frightened, compliant people, not courageous, independent ones. That's why we destroyed the middle class during the corona outbreak. That's why small businesses weren't allowed to operate, but big businesses were. Ask yourself this question. If someone wanted to bring down America as a country and drive it into the dirt, what would they do to accomplish that end? And what would it look like? What would be some indications that the people who are supposed to be working for us are actually working against us? It's a great mental exercise for the week, and maybe we'll find out the answer next week. Until then, remember, we only have one real weapon that Christ gave us to fight against evil, and that weapon is truth. All kinds of truth in all kinds of circumstances. If we abandon truth for comfort, for security, for safety, or for worldly acceptance, we give up the only weapon that Christ gave us to use. So the only choice we will have at that point would be to surrender to our fate or to rejoin Satan's encampment. What does it profit a man, said Jesus, to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, how will we buy our souls back once they are sold? It's ironic that the new globalist oligarchs are getting so close to gaining control of the world. I hope they're happy about it, because what they don't realize is that someone is going to gain it, but it isn't going to be them. Too bad for their sold souls. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, or even entertaining, please recommend it to someone you know who might benefit by it. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face and encourage others to listen. Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian is heard on several fine podcast platforms like the one you're listening to, but also Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. I think. I haven't checked to see if they've been taken down yet. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. And until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and always do the work of God in a truthful way, because truth is our one weapon that we have and they can't take from us. 